Let me begin with Matthew 7, 13 and 14. It's a passage, of course, that's very familiar to many of you. We emphasize the straight and narrow is the way and few there be who find it. And in some aspects, Christianity is indeed a very difficult, or as the text says, a very straight and narrow way. And that is one place that we, we need to contemplate and think about. Now in this lesson, I want to go the, the other direction from that. I want to take Isaiah 34 and 8, where it said there should be a highway there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, and that's the part I want to emphasize, although a fool, shall not go astray. While in some sense Christianity is very difficult and is very challenging, I think on the other hand, as Isaiah said, it is a way that even though someone is a fool, if he is of the mind to follow it, he can follow it. Let me try to build up that idea for just a moment with a couple of more verses. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we see that God didn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. My idea here is, is that God did not take the time that He took, some 4,000 plus years, to come to the time of Calvary and set up a plan of salvation that was so difficult to understand, grasp, and follow, and get your mind around that nobody would ever figure it out. I don't think He set in place a cryptographic plan of salvation that only a genius here and there would have the ability to unravel and gain the advantage that He wanted us to have. John 3.16 they have a popular, of course, for God to love the world passage. And it's a good one for you to memorize and take comfort in. And the point continues to be, I don't think God went through all that He went through and Calvary and all that Calvary entailed. And we won't try to go into all of that, but the crown of thorns, the beating, the spitting, the piercing, the nails, all of that. When you think of how intense, how serious in the time He spent here, I just simply do not believe that He did that in order to set up a plan of salvation that the majority of people would look at and go, I can't figure that out. I don't know what he means. I don't think he set up a puzzle that man would never be able to figure out. One more verse along that line, Matthew 11 and 5. This may not be an obvious connection, but I think it plays in. It said the blind and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and this last phrase here, and the poor had the gospel preached to them. Who did Jesus come to? Did he come to the intellectual elite did He come to those, we would say, who had their, their doctorate in theology and divinity? Did He come to the highly educated of the religious class? Or did He come to the poor? And I don't mean this to sound too cold, but He came to the ignorant, the dumb, the uneducated. He came to the folks that if they had to sign their name, they'd have to put down an X and have a witness write it down for them. He came to the average John Doe who just wasn't the most educated of his time. And the point there is, is if that's the caliber of people that he came to, setting the Pharisees and their lawyers and the rulers and the Sadducees, all those people kind of aside, he came to a people that didn't have to be geniuses to understand the plan of salvation. While the way is narrow and difficult from some aspects, there are other aspects where the way is very simple. And even somebody who was raised in poverty without an education could have the gospel preached to them. They could comprehend that gospel. They could understand what they needed to do on their part and they could enjoy the salvation that Christ went to Calvary to bring us. And so we have a whole other aspect, a way of looking at it, where you can emphasize the simplicity of it. Now, why is it so difficult on one hand? Well, I'd take you to Proverbs 16 and 32 and talk about the heart of man for a moment. The reason it's so difficult, in my opinion, and I hope you agree, is not that what is written in black and white on our pages is so tough, the reason it gets so complicated and hard to figure out is because what's between our ears is so stubborn and bullheaded 
that if we don't like the sound of it, we will twist that book 14 ways to Sunday till we make it say what we want it to say. And anybody else in any logical approach they want, you just forget that because I've done made up my mind that what that book says is whatever it says and nobody is going to change me on that. You see what I'm saying? The book's not so tough. The book says what it says. You know, somebody was asking for commentary in class once and a brother says it means what it says and it says what it means. Well, that's, that's pretty good sometimes, you know. I think that's what it, what it does. But we get our pride stirred up. We get our emotions stirred up. And we plant our feet. And we, the people, make it a difficulty beyond anything I think God ever intended. I think God intended a message that the average guy could pick up, as Isaiah 35 said, even though a fool could look at it and go, well, that's what God wants. That's what I'm going to do. And he'd be on his way to heaven. Now, I understand that's a little bit of an oversimplification if we use 2 Peter 3.16, but we're not going to look at that right now. We're going to look at the more simple aspect. Now, salvation is multifaceted. There are multiple aspects to it. There are different things you can pick out here and there. And I think that's where part of the problem comes up, is there are quite a few things that the Bible relates to salvation. And that's what we're going to do in this lesson. We're going to run through a list rather quickly. But what happens is, is I come along and I start out with, oh, let's say Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved. And I stop right there and say, see, that's right. That's it right there. That's it. It's all about grace. Now, there's another 25, 30 verses I haven't read yet, but I've decided it's all about grace. And some have taken that so far to come up with the idea of predestination and that God has already decided who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and you have absolutely no choice in it. And then, of course, when you try to tell somebody, yeah, well, I understand what Ephesians 2.8 says, but you need to read this one over here too. All of a sudden, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, they bow up and there's trouble. And now it gets difficult. Why? Because the Bible's so tough? No, because the stubbornness of man is so tough. You know, some people like to emphasize faith. As faith only is what we would call it. If you'll define faith by the first century definition, I'll just about go along with you there. Wouldn't have to hardly qualify anything if you go by that old definition the Bible uses, but if you go by the new one, then I'm going to disagree with you. But there are a few folks that want to camp out on that aspect of it, and of course when you challenge them, all of a sudden pride gets stirred up and we got a whole lot of problems. Now, among our brethren, the place we have a tendency to camp out is on baptism. Well, that's where we like to hammer down. We like to really hit that First Peter 3.21, Acts 2.38, and sometimes if, if we're not careful, It'll sound like we think uh, God's plan of salvation got one step in, and that's the water. And you know, baptism is the whole deal and then nothing else. And brethren, that's wrong too. The Bible relates a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of aspects, of facets, if you would, to salvation. And so what we're going to do in this lesson is we're just going to look at a basic book, chapter, verse foundation. I don't plan on saying a whole lot more than what I've said now because I have like 20 verses I want to run you through rather quickly. If I think about it, I'll put them in the bulletin tonight so you can study them further. But uh, this is really going to be a tour, if you will, through the Scripture. Not so much the traditional type of sermon that you're more accustomed to because I just want you to look and say, oh, the Bible connected that to salvation. Oh, it connected that to salvation and that to salvation. And like I say, there are some 20 verses or so that, that we're going to look at that the Bible connects to salvation. And so we're going to see that in some ways it is quite simple, but we'll see also that you do have to be studious. So, no more comment. Let's get with it. We're going to start with 1 Timothy 2, 3. And I've tried to underline the point that I want to pull out the verse. Several of the verses have mentioned two or three aspects. And so we're not going to exhaust each verse. We've got to start out, of course, with God, our Savior. Because if you take God out of the picture, we've got no salvation. It's not a man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 10, 23 said, if God in heaven hadn't looked down and said, 
well, Adam did it. Now we've got to come up with something where I think we've got to anticipate all that. But if God hadn't have taken the steps to give us a plan of salvation, there would be no plan of salvation. We would just be hopelessly lost. And so one of the primary aspects would be God Himself and His love and His mercy. And we'll talk about that some as we go. Then Matthew 1 and 21, Jesus, for He will say, now we have God our Savior, and we got Jesus. Obviously, you've got to have the blood of Christ. There in Matthew 26, a little reference at the bottom. That's where he institutes the Lord's Supper and he talks about the bread and he talks about the fruit of the vine. He said, this is my blood. And then about that covenant, his blood. Of course, without the blood of Christ, we've got nothing. Romans 5, 9 says we are justified by the blood of Christ. So when we're going to talk about salvation. We absolutely have to talk about God the Father who made the plan of salvation. And we've got to talk about Christ who um, is... You know, I didn't really want to use the words primary and key, but when you talk about the blood of Christ, you take either one of those out. We've got absolutely nothing, huh? And so you've got the blood of Christ, which is another key element to it and everything that He did. And then we bring in that we were chosen to salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, I don't know a whole lot to say about the Spirit. I'll tell you what's happening in our culture currently. We have that segment of the religious community that we call charismatic. Locally, we might use the word Pentecostal a little more. And we know what they are, and we don't want to look like them because we don't practice everything they practice. And therefore, we start talking about the Holy Spirit. Everybody gets real uncomfortable real quick because we're not really sure what to do with the Holy Spirit. And even among our brotherhood, we have some various ideas about the role of the Holy Spirit. And so we kind of go, well, yeah, He's there. Mm -hmm. uh, you mention Him out later on in Acts 2.38 also in other verses. But what we have is we have the Holy Spirit has a role in our sanctification, our salvation, our being set apart. It's also due to what the Holy Spirit his role is involved. Now again, this isn't the time to try to detail all the mechanics of that, but nonetheless, we've obviously got the Father, and we've got the Son, the Blood, and we've got the Holy Spirit. So these three things without, we've got nothing. So it all started in the divine mind of God, or the Godhead, if you would, and that is the key point where it all must emanate, or we've got absolutely no hope for anything. Then we bring man into the picture with Romans 8 and 24, where we're saved in this hope. And so it is that idea that we've got a hope, we've got a a seeking, a, a looking for salvation. You've got man responding to the salvation that God has offered. And so you've got now four players, and I think that that pretty much stayed the same. And we're going to bring the word into it. I uh, don't want to get to a lot of that, but you might count that five. I won't quibble with you there. But we have all of these that are coming together, and that's just our first four verses. And you start to see that it's not just one thing. You know, now you could, if you wanted, say you have the divine side. The things that God did, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Word, you know, that would be your divine side. And you have the, the human side, the response to what divinity did. So you could pull it down that simple if you wanted. And again, that would be appropriate in some classes also. But right now, we'll just keep on going here. Titus 3 and 5, according to His mercy, He saved us. Now, you didn't have God's mercy. You know, you have some folks that have the attitude, you know, well, you made your bed, now lie in it. So what if God would look down at Adam and Eve, saw the mess they had got themselves into, and said, tough luck. I told you not to eat of that tree. You did it. Now figure it out for yourself. And just left us there. We'd have been in a world of hurt because the ideas that men have come up with to try to remedy those things have been horrendous paganism that really emphasized more sin and didn't have anything to do with godliness. So it was His mercy looking down upon the situation that man was in and responding with his mercy. And so his mercy, like all the other things that we'll look at, becomes a critical element and you just can't focus on just the one and say, well, that's the only thing there is. No, we've got mercy here. Also, we have words by which you and all your household will be saved. But this is where Peter 
in chapter 10, he's been over to Cornelius and he's talked to Cornelius and they've had that whole story. And then he goes back to Jerusalem and he has to report to his peers because in their culture, it was unlawful for a Jew to go keep company with Gentiles as Peter had done in chapter 10. So in chapter 11, he's reporting back to his Jewish peers, explaining to them what had happened, going all the way back, I'm sure, to the sheep and everything, and thus the sheep with the unclean animals that were let down. And thus he is telling them what was going on, and this is the phrase we key in on here. There are words by which you and all your household will be saved, and that is the word. And we'll have several back verses that deal with various aspects of the word. But in Mark 16, 15, or you could use Matthew, you know, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. It is that word that is absolutely important because if they don't hear the word, how can they ever be saved? I mean, you can have God in heaven in all the mercy. You can have Christ in his blood. You can have the Holy Spirit. And you can have some people out there hoping, but if you don't know the hope, if you don't know the word, if you haven't received the message, as we say in Romans 10 and 14, how can they believe with that hope? If somebody doesn't tell them, what good is it? Also in Romans 10, I don't think it's verse 14, but that's where he talks about those who preach the gospel have beautiful feet. I know it's kind of corny, but sometimes I just kind of like to look down and go on the pretty feet right there. Now, actually, they're probably pretty ugly, but in the spiritual sense, they're pretty beautiful. And all of you who teach the gospel and share the gospel and let your life shine as a gospel example, you've got beautiful feet too. But that sharing of the word, that preaching, that teaching part of it, that's an absolute essential part. If you take the teachers out, we've got nothing out I know God, I believe God could have set up something else had He chose to, but He chose what we call the Great Commission. He put it upon us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Therefore, He made us, as His soldiers of Christ, because we like to sing, an important part of the plan of salvation. So we go into all the world and teach. Again, you just can't take one single element and go, well, that's it. It's all about baptism. You've got to get the baptism right, or you don't have any salvation. Well, I agree you've got to get the baptism right but you also got to get everything else right too. You've got to understand this is a bigger thing than just grace or faith or baptism. Romans 1.16, the gospel. It's the power of God, the salvation. Now the gospel, the word, I realize now we're kind of overlapping, but that would be okay. But it is that gospel. Now, we had the word that's got to be preached, so you got preachers, teachers. They've got to go out and teach. They've got to teach the gospel, and it is the gospel of the power of God and the salvation. Wait a minute, preacher, I thought it was the blood that were justified by Romans 5 and verse 9, right? Well, yeah, it is the blood. Well, no, I thought it was the mercy of God. That, well, it is the mercy of God also. Well, I thought we were sanctified by the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Well, we're that too. And the Word, the Gospel. It's all part of this same thing that culminates in, in what we call salvation. James 1 and 21. The implanted Word, which is able to save your soul. Now, let's emphasize implanted for a moment. So we got people that are out there teaching the word. That's the Great Commission. That's the way God set it up. He said, I want y'all to get up and go tell people. We got people that what they want to hear, what God wants us to deliver, I should say, is the gospel. It's his power and his salvation. Now, so I'm up, I'm before an audience. Let's make it really big. Let's make it a football arena with 20,000 people. And I stand up, I'm gonna share the floor with Lee on this one with 20,000 people. That's a lot of talk to, right? And so we're gonna we're gonna team teach a little bit. And we preach the gospel and we put it out there. It's God's power and salvation. Is it going to do any good if it's not implanted in the heart of the listener? So the listener now has a role. Now man has the role of going into the world and preaching it. He's got to preach the right thing. And the listener's got to hear it and implant it into his or her heart. And it is able to save their soul when it's implanted. But if they don't accept it into their heart, then what do we got? 
we've got somebody who's got nothing. Of course, that's what happened to a lot of folks. So now we've got God's part, we've got Christ's part, we've got the Holy Spirit's part, we've got the preacher's part, we've got the listener's part, and so we've got multiple facets to come together to bring about this thing that we ultimately call salvation and conversion. John 8, 31, 32. This would be an emphasis on the educational part of it. Again, you should know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is know the truth. This isn't just to be able to mindlessly quote some verse. I learned John 3.16 probably first grade, certainly before the second grade, maybe kindergarten. Did I have a clue of what John 3.16 really meant when I was a little snotty five-year-old running around just, you know, doing what the teachers told me? Of course not. Do I have an idea of what John 3.16 means today? Absolutely. You see, along the way of continuous study, just like you, we learn the truth, and as we learn the truth, it's what makes us free. So there's that educational process that's absolutely part of all of this. You might also think of 2 Timothy 2.15 about study to show yourself approved. Then we have this coming to the knowledge. Again, we're still with the word, we're still with the truth, but it's, it's got to be really understood. You really have to open up that book and read it. It can't be if the blind lead the blind, oh, well, we're still going to end up in heaven somehow. That's Matthew 15 and 14. If the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. So he said you should know the truth. The truth should make you free. So we got the word. we got people out there preaching the word. But it can't just be any old word. It's got to be the word that Jesus delivered. I should have Matthew 7, 21 up there. I may be getting a little ahead of myself and have it another place. But, you know, there were the people who prophesied in his name, did many wonders in his name, cast out demons in his name. And he said, I never knew you because they didn't have the word that was the power of the salvation. Now they had a word, but they didn't have the word and they got themselves into trouble. So he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so this knowledge of the truth, going back to John 8, 31 and 32 again, would also work. John 5 and 24, he who has ears, he who hears my word has everlasting life. I was thinking about so many times because he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So if you have ears to hear and you hear the word, you abide in that word, you believe that word, you really listen. Now again, this isn't just, I sat through a sermon and I'm glad he quit when he normally quits because I was getting weary on that pew. You ever sat on a pew and you get tired sitting there and then you're glad he's through? That ain't what he's talking about. How many of you, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you have done this? Grabbed your child's attention one way or the other where you're literally grabbing by the ear, the hand, the shoulder, the, the side of the shirt and said, do you hear me? Are you listening to me? And you didn't mean are your eardrums wiggling because you knew their eardrums were wiggling. And you knew they didn't hear you because they were, yeah, I hear you. Which told you they never heard a word, didn't you? When he says you hear, that means that implanted thing. There's a lot deeper something going on there than just us sitting through a sermon going, whoa, I'm glad he got us out before the church down the road so we can feed him to the buffet down to Western Sizzling, which is what a lot of folks are interested in. So we've got our Lord involved, we've got Jesus involved, we've got the Holy Spirit involved, we've got man's desire for salvation involved, we've got the preachers involved, we've got the Word, and then we've got the hearer who has to receive that Word. It is a multifaceted thing. And to single out one item, any one item, and say that's the one, you've got to have that one, well, I think you could probably say that about all of them. You know, as you get to think about it, list them. Which one can we take out and still have salvation? I don't know if we take any of them out. Ephesians 2.10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Grace, absolutely essential. It is that unmerited favor that God bestowed upon us and gave us an opportunity we don't deserve. Not a single one of us deserved the opportunity to walk again with God after we blew it with our sin. But because of His grace, 
and his mercy that we've already talked about. He gave us an opportunity we didn't deserve. Now, we're going to talk about faith in a second, but do note that this verse says grace through faith. It doesn't say grace only. There is never a anything only passage. It's not a baptism only, not a faith only, not a grace only, not a repentance only, not a blood only. There's no only verses there. This is all comes together to make salvation. Romans 10. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is over all. Rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 4.12 is where he says there's no other, no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. There's that name and we call upon that name. Acts 22.16 is where Saul of Tarsus responds to Ananias' message. Why Terry Salrod be baptized calling upon his name? You see in that calling upon the name, it's not just that, that verbal effort. You might connect that with the uh, good confession that we make since that would be a verbal thing. But that calling is that whole surrender that we make. And so when Ananias was talking to Saul and said, Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, call upon the name of the Lord. It was in all that all that response, that surrender, that humbling himself to the will of God that was the calling upon the name of the Lord. And so again we have man's reaction, man's part in there. Acts 16, 30, 31. And he brought him out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your household. That's the one I said in the intro that if you'll use the definition they used back in the first century, I'll agree. We could sum it up with faith is the answer. But you've got to understand that their whole concept of faith was not that modernistic consent to a historical fact. When they said faith, they didn't say, like we would say, I, I believe Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. They didn't say, I believe George Washington was the first president of America. Their whole concept of faith was a conviction, a personal surrender, and a conduct of life based upon that personal surrender. When they had faith, that Greek word was pistuo, it wasn't just a, oh yeah, I think that's true. It was a surrender to those facts and making Jesus Lord. Now, if that's your definition of faith, then I'd absolutely put a lot of stock in that, but I have to clarify that today because of the various concepts that are out there. Since we're trying to go back to Bible words and Bible ways, then we've got to make that distinction. So when they believed, it was a whole lot more than just agreeing to historical facts. Then we come to confession. If you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. That's Romans 10 and verse 9. Christ said it this way, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you don't, I won't. That's a paraphrase, but I think you get the message, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And so we have this point of confession. That confession is not that we're a sinner, but that Jesus is Lord. And so we make that good confession. If you don't make that good confession, and I would say not just at the time of your conversion, but throughout the course of your life, then you can't go to heaven there either. You're going to miss that one. And Mark 16, 16, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. So we have belief and baptism brought together here. Absolutely part of God's plan of salvation. But these happen to be the two that we really like to focus upon. We like to focus on the, the baptism. Other people like to focus on the belief part. It's all there. It's all in the book. Acts 2, 38, repent. Let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So we've got a repentance. We've got baptism again. If you don't turn from your sins, stop your rebellion, and start walking the straight and narrow way, you can't go to heaven. Christ would say, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. So we've got our repentance, which we talk about a lot. And then 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism. And baptism, of course, is again in the Scriptures old dozen times or so. I forget exactly how many times it's mentioned, but it'd be in that neighborhood. And so we have the, the baptism coming in and making the place. We've got a lot of things that come in together that culminate in the sins of the sinner being washed away by the blood of Christ. John 3, 5, he said, unless you're born of water and the Spirit. 
Now, scholars like to debate that one a little bit. Traditionally, it has been taken as a reference to baptism. I would still do that, of course. Others would say not. But this is where we get the idea also of being born again. Not a common phrase that we like to use in our brotherhood so much, but a lot of people have heard the phrase born again, and this conversation with Nicodemus is where it came from. And in Hebrews 5 and 9, having been perfected, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I think maybe obedience would be a good way to sum it all up for man's part. We start with that divine side that we talk about. We do all those things. God, God did all those things. And then man responds to what God did. I like the word surrender myself to Hebrews 5 and 9. It does use the word obey. So the word obey would work quite well. Incidentally, the word obey and the word faith in the Greek are so intertwined, so closely related, that sometimes when they're translating the Greek into the English, they can't agree whether they want to use the word faith or the word obey. Now, if you can understand that, you'll see why I would put so much in the, the word faith based on its original meaning. And thus, we have some more there. I thought I had one more, but that's all right. Revelation 2.10 is the last one that I meant to have on there. Be thou faithful unto death. See, conversion is just the start. Now, isn't it kind of funny how we argue and fuss and bicker and debate and squabble and really get riled up sometimes over the conversion process when all that is was the gate opened up and it's time to go. That, that was the firing of the gun. That was the start. It's okay, I got my conversion. Now what do I do? Well, now you be faithful unto death. That's Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. And he'll give you a crown of life. Now, we got a whole other level of stuff opened up that we'll talk about some tonight as we talk about the obstacle course on the way to heaven. Now, that's not the exact words I'll be using tonight, but we'll talk about some of the things that we must get correct on our way to heaven if we're really going to enjoy heaven. So after we get the conversion part done, okay, I'm converted, my sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ, and now what? Well, that's a whole other topic there. And in neither case can you look at one item, grace, faith, or baptism, which are the three most popular, or take any off the list. You can't look just at the Word, you can't look just at the blood, you can't look just at the preacher, you can't look just at the student, you can't look at any one item and say, yeah, that's the one, that's the only one you gotta have. You get that right, nothing else matters. They all matter. They all come into play. And if we're really going to be a people of the book and really stand on the book, then we're going to understand this broader, a little more complex. And I don't think it was that tough. What do we have really? About seven things. We have the divine side. We've got the Word. We've got us and our response. And if you'll respond to what's in the Word, not just cherry pick what you want to respond to in the Word, but respond to the Word, then you will be saved. Even if you're a fool, you can walk in a response to that Word and it not be difficult. The challenge, though, as I said in the beginning, gets in here. My pride gets stirred up. My dander gets stirred up. You're not telling me my grandma was lost, are you? Oh, boy, we're in trouble now, aren't we? I can't tell you who's lost. I've never seen heaven myself. I've just read about it in the same book you've read about it. But that's the kind of emotionism we get tied up in, and that blocks our vision to seeing what the Scriptures just plainly said. I quit. You've had to tour the Scriptures. Have you responded to the Scriptures? Are you walking in it? If you are, stay the course. That's what you're supposed to do. If you're not, it's time for a change. We're here to help any way we can. Father,